Welcome to this week's episode of BusinessWise. This is a podcast series for entrepreneurs interested in expanding through learning and applying the management system discovered and developed by humanitarian philosopher and administrator, Mr. L. Ron Hubbard. You know, we are pretty careful to define our terms in BusinessWise. That's not really our idea. L. Ron Hubbard was very specific about the importance of clearing up nomenclature, terms, in any subject. In fact, in an article dated 2 September 1971, he observed the following, and I quote, Failed posts and duties trace back to misunderstood words. Until you see it, you won't believe it. Alan Hubbard. Okay, so he goes on then to observe that such fundamental words as the post title or even the word post itself are commonly misunderstood and explain a person's lack of affinity for their post or job and or their inability to perform its functions. In a recent episode of Business Wise, we defined the word post, P-O-S-T, and I don't mind defining it again in this episode because it is a very important word, number one. And then number two, a listener wrote me after that episode and made an interesting observation that I'm going to share with you uh, now. So the word post means in an English dictionary, I generally turn to Mr. Oxford, a position of paid employment, a job. That's the first definition. And the example they give here is he resigned from the post of foreign minister. So that's a, that's a paid position. It's a job. That's a post. That's definition one. Now listen to definition two, a place where someone is on duty or where a particular activity is carried out, a worker asleep at his post. And there's a variation. It's a place where a soldier, guard, or police officer is stationed or that they are on patrol. Example here is he gave the two armed men orders not to leave their posts. So that second definition brings in another element or connotation to the word post. It's not just a job. It seems now it's also a location. It's a place where one is expected to be trusted, loyal, alert, and perform one's duties. That's an interesting connotation, and it gives a lot more depth to the word post and in my estimation, makes it a much more favorable term than just the word job. You know, it's my job, I gotta go do this. It's my post implies this element of trust. And it has other implications as well. I'm just gonna go over that with you. Let's look at the derivation. It says here, mid-16th century from French post, from Italian posto, from a contraction of popular Latin positum, which comes from ponere to place. So post means to place. So it implies location. It implies a placement. Okay. Now let's take a look at a definition of the word post from Mr. Hubbard. This definition is compiled from two articles, one 20 October 1967, the other one 28 July 1971. In other words, this is derived from those references. It is from Mr. Hubbard. And he defines it as follows, a position, job, or duty to which a person is assigned or appointed, an assigned area of responsibility and action in an organization which is supervised in part by an executive. So that's a very comprehensive definition of the word 
post. Now, the interesting thing about this is this idea of a position or a place. The English definition goes over it. Mr. Hubbard's definition is, is very similar, and it also goes over this idea. It's a position, job, or duty to which a person is assigned or appointed. So it's an assigned area of responsibility and action. So that's the person's post. What is my post? I am the receptionist. What is my post? I am the salesman. What is my post? I am the manager of customer relations. Whatever those posts are. I am the production supervisor. I am the assembler. I am over human resources. I'm the human resources director, and I'm responsible for putting people on post, giving them a place, giving them a function, giving them a hat. So these are all posts, and you you could also say they're jobs, but you see the difference if you describe it as a post, and the post gives this idea of position or place. Now, the point that the listener pointed out to me, which is an excellent point, is the tie-in between The word post and one of Mr. Hubbard's definitions of the word power, which I'm going to go over with you now. He says here, quote, a person who is hatted can control his post. Hatted means he's been trained on the responsibilities and duties and the purposes and so forth of his post or his position or his job, right? So he says a person who is hatted can control his post. If he can control his post, he can hold his position in space. In short, his location. And this is power. When a person is uncertain, he cannot control his position. He feels weak. He goes slow. This is from an article, 23 July 1972. So, right there, the word post also implies the ability to hold a position, a post. So neatly ties in with this concept of power. If you have a technician, let's say you have, you're a dentist and you're hiring an associate dentist and they've just come out of school and they go in the room and they're there to uh, perform a procedure on a patient and the patient says, boo. And, you know, he's not certain. He's not ready to hold his position. He's like, out of there, man. Hey, you know, you know, the patient just said boo to me. And what am I supposed to do now, boss? And it's like, there's no... He's not really holding the post yet. He can hold that post effectively as he is trained to do so, as he is made familiar with his post, his hat, his duties, his functions, his purposes. Then the more you give him that, the more he can hold his position, the more he is, quote, on post, end quote. You follow? So post is a very valuable word. It has a lot more value probably than just simply the word job. So I would definitely choose the word post over the word job as the connotations are so much stronger. That sense of duty, trust, of alertness, of power, I think it is such an honorable term and should be in more common usage probably than it is. I don't know that many businesses would say, you know, you go in and you talk to the reception and say, what's your post? She probably would look at you like, what are you talking about? You know, we're a salesman. I see you have a post as salesman. A what? But I would recommend it to the members. Uh as something that we should cultivate as a term. It's, a, it's just a great term. And, and you'll see that more uh, as we continue with this episode. Now, all of us hold many posts, don't we? Wouldn't father or mother or husband or wife or brother or friend, don't each of these have their own responsibilities and duties, really? Don't they? Aren't they really posts? They're things you are now, in, you know, you are entrusted to be a good father. And there's, you know, we, a lot of times we have to figure that out on our own. Uh, unfortunately, there's no hat right up for father uh, that is easily discoverable. 
or for brother or for friend, but there should be really because they are. They're positions of trust and responsibility and they have duties and functions, you know. A friend is supposed to have your back through thick and thin, you know. So let's have more friends. Let's have a friend hat. But uh, anyhow, but how about the post of entrepreneur? Wouldn't that be a post as well? I'd be willing to bet that most of our listeners have assumed that post more or less, and it would pay to understand exactly what it means. If you have never defined it, that fact alone could keep you from achieving the level of success you see. So let's look at the definition. So entrepreneur, this is an English dictionary, Oxford, a person who organizes and operates a business or businesses, and then listen to this, it's qualified a bit, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. And that comes from uh, mid-18th century, denoting a person who undertakes a project from French, from entreprendre, which means undertake. Prendre means to take, entre means under, undertake. So it's, if you're an entrepreneur, you undertake stuff. And there is risk involved. And you know that. I know that. We all know that. That's part of being an entrepreneur. You're going to take some risks, right? Here, they're describing them as financial risks. Could be a lot of other risks as well. You know, you could be risking your marriage. You could be risking your family. You could be risking your life. Who knows? It's an enterprise. It is something that is undertaken. Now, it comes from the word enterprise, or they have a similar root. Enterprise means a project or undertaking, typically one that is difficult or requires effort. Hmm, I'm about to engage in an enterprise, an undertaking. Same derivation comes from Middle English, from Old French, something undertaken, based on Latin, prandere, meaning to take. So, you got an enterprise, that's got its own connotation, it's got its own shades of meaning, it's probably going to be difficult, probably going to have risk involved, it's going to take some work, okay? Now, definition two of enterprise is just a business or company. So that's its own definition. It's a definition number two. But the listeners and I know that if you're taking on a business or company, you're probably taking on a project or undertaking, typically one that is difficult or requires effort. So they're very close in meaning, really. Okay, so now we're going to do a little jujitsu on you. Hi-ya! You're probably thinking that, okay, the entrepreneur is going to be a business owner, right? And it's true, that's what we generally consider an entrepreneur to be. Because it is a business owner who's taking on the risk, right? Really? Is that so? How about the employee? Does he not share the risk? Oh, no, no. He gets his paycheck every week, right? Where's the risk? Wrong. What happens when the business folds? No risk? What happens if it contracts and people start getting laid off? No risk? You know, back in the day, we were able to get people to work by simply making them slaves, right? Put them in chains. Give them the whip. We'll get them to work, all right. Well, thank God we don't use chains anymore, right? Now, we are much more civilized. We can use wages. Economics. The Great Slavery of the Paycheck. You know, I was talking to a friend, I guess you could say, of mine. Met him late in his life. He worked for, I believe it was a post office. And not particularly happy with his lot. 
had um, decent pay. I had a project I was trying to get him interested in that I thought was kind of exciting and, and would be very uh, rewarding for him. And he said, well, I've got five more years. He, he sounded like he was serving out a sentence. What do you mean you got five more years? Well, you know, um, five more years and I can retire with full pension. Wow. That's not slavery? Well, what happens if you retire now? Oh, I, I still get a pension, but, you know, it's not the full pension. All right, brother, so you're locked in now for another five years. Interesting projects that you actually do have an interest in. You, you cannot involve yourself because you're going to lose your security. You're going to lose your pension. You're going to lose. Now, of course, we look at these things and laugh because, you know, with inflation being what it is, how much is that pension going to be worth, you know? What if he had ditched it all and just thrown his lot in with, you know, this crazy group of guys that I was putting together to do something or other that we considered worthwhile? You know, maybe he'd be much better off right now. Who knows? Saw him just the other day. Nice, nice, nice gentleman. He is retired now. That was more than five years ago. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Doesn't look like life holds a lot of tremendous excitement for him right at the moment. I haven't really talked to him closely, but that seems to be the situation. But, you know. What do I know? But you know situations like this. This is not uncommon. Slavery of the paycheck. Slavery of wages. Like, I only have to work 10 more years as a whatever it is. And I'm not even implying working in the post office isn't fun or couldn't be interesting or exciting. And really, a lot of that depends upon the attitude of the individual towards whatever they're doing, though, doesn't it? We'll get more into this. But consider this. Maybe, just maybe, the bright future for a company and an organization would be if everyone in that company knew they, quote, shared the risk, end quote. They do anyway, whether they realize it or not. But what if everyone was, and these are Mr. Hubbard's words, and I will get into this more in a moment, quote, something of an entrepreneur, end quote. So I'm going to read you now from, actually, this is a recorded question and answer period with Mr. Hubbard. He was, he had just completed a lecture and he was taking questions from the audience and somebody was asking him about survival and security and so on. And Mr. Hubbard said this, and I'll read this from the transcript. The date of this is 12 March, 1957. If you have a collection of his works, you may have that lecture and you can listen to it on your own. But he says here, the person's actually asking, control or controlled? So they're talking about control. And Mr. Hubbard says this. Well, I'll tell you an amusing story right here. Control datum. All of labor, the world around, is handled by wage these days. They're no longer handled by chains. They're handled by wage and the installment plan and various other mechanisms, all of which are dependent upon the wage being an arbitrary and independent factor disassociated from the earnings of the organization. See? All right, now that's a good, steady control point. It's a solid control point. That's L. Ron Hubbard. So he's describing now between, you know, installment plans, mortgages, payments, you know, over time for different things and wages, a kind of a slavery has been, chains have been more or less set up, economic chains. Those chains, strangely enough, on the participant, you know, the, the employee, those 
that wage or that paycheck is not necessarily connected or related to the welfare and expansion and, and uh, survival of the organization they're working for. It's just that's my paycheck. I get it every week or I don't. You know, uh, it's, it's as simple as that. And the connection between that and the expansion and prosperity of the organization is not necessarily there. Okay. So then he goes on to say this. Wobble it sometime in an organization and see what you get. You get people being quite irrational about it. They go in circles. This is one of the more amusing things, and yet to consistently raise wages in an organization with any safety to the organization, it would be necessary that they be raised proportionate to the income of the organization. That's Mr. Hubbard. So that makes sense, right? You want to keep paying people more money? We got to make more money. That's kind of logical, but not necessarily the way the think is, right? Because he goes on, he says, because if you raised everybody's wages in the organization just like that and then hit a slump period, then you'd have to cut everybody's wages and you'd be moving their wages around. But on what level? On a management level, by which you were directly, positively dictating with no argument these sums of wages. This is a fantastic level of action. Now, it isn't necessarily good for people. This, these are Mr. Hubbard's words now. Now, it isn't necessarily good for people in an organization never to have any security. Actually, don't realize that the fixed wage defeats the security of most organizations. The one bill that you always must meet is the wage bill. All right. So this whole control mechanism, this whole, these are my words now, this whole security setup, well, I've got a nice, well-paying job. That's a lie. It can be a lie because that well-paying job is utterly dependent upon the prosperity of the organization that you're a part of. I mean, look, every week, every month, we read about layoffs and people losing their jobs. These people all thought they had security, didn't they? They had a pension. That's gone. They had this. They had that. All gone. Why? Because the organization is gone. So are you telling me then that those involved in working in and with the organization should not have a connection with that organization in terms of its difficulty, in terms of its enterprise, in terms of its risk? Who, who are we cheating when we do that? We're cheating the organization, but we're also cheating the employee because that isn't the truth. It isn't the truth that they have this great security. What is the truth is that they share in the risk and prosperity and the gains and the losses of that organization. And if that can be instilled in that group, then that group has a higher potential for survival because they connect the dots between the survival of the organization and their own. In other words, to one degree or another, they themselves are becoming entrepreneurs, aren't they? Because they are taking on the undertaking, the undertaking. They share in that undertaking. They share in that enterprise, in other words. Okay? Wouldn't that be hot if we could instill that? And wouldn't that be freeing? Where's the slavery there? See? That's true freedom. Because I know that my creativity and my contribution and my personal expansion involvement is creating a greater survival for me and for my group and for my organization. I'm free. I can walk out. I can do this anywhere I want. Do you follow? So anyway, let's go back to this uh, very, very interesting transcript. He says here, 
Therefore, boards consistently and continually do nothing but look at the future and try to keep wages down because the future might have a slump in it. And if the future slumps, then these wage raises become unreal and you have to lay off lots of people. And you have to do this and readjust and so forth. And you couldn't do that soon enough. So they just never raise wages. See, you know, now management's like, how can I keep these wages as low as possible? Because I don't know, we, you know, we're doing okay right now, but I don't know how we're going to do next year. I don't know how we're going to do next month. So now we get this games condition between management and the guys who are doing the job, right? Holding the posts. So he goes on to say this, Mr. Robert says this, so you get unions forcing management into various positions and management seeking to control with great ardour, great effort, with great ardour, the income level of the country. And you get this wonderful game going on. That's one of the more weird games. That's Mr. Hubbard's words. Now, that's a bad game, all right. Now, just try to give an organization a flexibility of wage that depends upon the income of the organization. Then you'll have people leaping up, usually in the upper wage group of the organization, telling you that this is a desperately terrible answer. This is horrible. This is a bad thing. What's a bad thing here? These were Mr. Hubbard's words. What's a bad thing? Flexibility of wage. No, nobody likes that. And then Mr. Hubbard says this. What's bad about it? Well, you make the wage conditional upon the health of the organization. And if the organization makes more, people make more. If it makes less, people make less. In view of the fact that they are the influencing factor, in view of the fact that they are the ones that make the organization or don't, You've actually put a hell of a via on the line. But it is a control factor. See, we make this whole thing set up so that there's this fixed wage. Now, I'm not saying violate the law. You've got your minimum wage. But you probably could review how you've structured your pay in your organization so that people make more when the organization makes more and make less when the organization makes less. I'm not using this episode to go over the mechanics of how you would do that. I'm only pointing out, as Mr. Hubbard is pointing out, the philosophy behind it, the rationale behind why there is great value in initiating and putting something like that in. But you're going to get backlash on it because that's not the way it is. And it is, as Mr. Hubbard says, a control factor. Like we can control them all because they need to have this paycheck. No, he could leave me, but he's not going to make the same amount of money somewhere else. Like this kind of rationale, this weird sort of game where We hold on to him by paying him more, regardless of how our organization is doing. In actual fact, we've divorced him. We've put him on a via. We've divorced him from the actual involvement with the expansion, growth, survival of that organization. And he goes on to say this, Mr. Robert says this, and it's such an habitual control factor that practically everybody in the workaday world lies in that groove. Hey, we're all in it, man. That's the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to go. Most fantastic things, people go out and work for the telephone company. This is Mr. Hubbard. Most fantastic things, people go out and work for the telephone company as telephone operators. Well, this is a gorgeous thing. Their working conditions are so good and the future is so secure and the wages are so terrible. And then a a male voice says, small but solid. Yeah, Mr. Hubbard says, yeah, small but solid. Now we got that solid security. I'm not making much money, but it's solid, you know. Yeah, small but solid. And people will go to work for the telephone company and just work all their lives. Then all of a sudden, one fine day, have the rug pulled out from underneath them, and they just got nothing. Bang! Now, listen to this. This is the paragraph that I inspired me to give you this particular episode. 
He says, people have this idea of a job meaning security, and it's not security at all. The only secure person in a fluctuating society is one who has something of the entrepreneur. Something of the entrepreneur. In other words, he must be able to put into existence business, action, commodity, money. He must be able to do something about it. He must have himself some control over money, commodity, and other things before he himself can have any real security at all. Isn't that something? That makes you very right, doesn't it, listener? You, an entrepreneur, I'm pretty sure you are. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you don't have your own business, but you are an entrepreneur in spirit. You, are, you could say you have something of the entrepreneur. You have a desire to create. You have a desire to be independent. You have a desire to be free because that is what makes you free. That is what gives you true security, your ability to create, to bring things into existence, to bring about action, money. And then uh, he, I'll just wrap this up. He says, and yet people who habitually on wages will not accept this. They just won't accept it. They would rather have a smaller check. They would rather have you stand around and cut their wages than to give them a variable check. L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, don't make them into entrepreneurs. Don't make them share in the creativity. Don't make them free. All right. That about wraps it up. <laughs> I didn't give you a whole lot of mechanics, how you might implement this. That was not the object of this week's episode, but merely to express the more ideal situation where your team, call them employees, your staff are involved in the creative day-to-day -day of your undertaking, of your enterprise, of your entrepreneurship the more every single one of those employees is something of the entrepreneur, the freer they will be. And I would dare say the more prosperous your organization and probably the more fun and worthwhile it is for people to be there and work there. All right. So I don't know. This might be a bit long of an episode. Uh, I intended it to be short, but I guess... There was more to say about this than I originally thought. Hope you got something out of it. If you did, I uh, appreciate your comments, your likes. Send us an email at info at wiseeastus.org. I would be very interested in your feedback on this. And uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll talk again next week.